Hey, this is Lee. I really hope you've been enjoying the Business of Marketing podcast. It's from marketers and for marketers, and my intention is to bring you value, experiences, and insights that you can use. Also, if your company would like to have their own podcast, I would love to help. The team at Content Monster specializes in B2B podcasts. So if we can help, contact me at contentmonster.com. That's contentmonster, M-O-N-S-T-A.com. Enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Business of Marketing Podcast where we have conversations with some of the most influential and thought-provoking minds in marketing, sales, and business. And here's your host, A. Lee Judge. Welcome again to the Business of Marketing. I'm A. Lee Judge. You know, great marketers are always having to study their craft. There's always something new, and we have to determine what's a passing fad versus what will be the next industry-changing technology. Today's guest is in a position to see both what's coming, to teach what's, teach what's coming, and also be a practitioner based on years of proven experience and usage of marketing technology. He's the Director of Content Strategy and Assessment at University of Rochester. He's an author, a speaker, a consultant, and a title I really want to dig into today. He is a Web3 educator. So welcome to the podcast, Brian Piper. Thanks so much for having me, Lee. Really appreciate it. Man, Brian, it's been good. You know, typically I don't refer to time frames before or after a podcast, but Brian and I, we had a chance to talk a lot last week at Content Marketing World. And um, we had scheduled this conversation beforehand, but we got a chance to catch up on so many things. I've totally thrown out anything I wanted to ask Brian last week. I want to dig in as follow-up to things we talked about when we, when we saw each other at Content Marketing World. So, you know, I, I'm going to dig into so many different things. I'm gonna t- we want to talk about web analytics because that's something you, you taught about um, at Content Marketing World. I want to talk about content I want to talk about Web3, and I really want to get into also the book that you did, um, you have updated with Joe Polizzi coming up. So all those things we're going to talk about. But before we get to that, Brian, um, give us a quick background of who you are, how you got here, so that all the other things kind of fall into context. Yeah, well, I, I kind of started off like you, Lee, as a developer, as a coder. I started out as a web developer and kind of had that job mostly to pay the bills and wasn't really passionate about it. Wasn't very talented at it either. So I started doing that in 1996 and was working with some very talented developers who pretty quickly realized that they should just put me on the web positioning side of things. So whenever we built a website for people, we had to optimize their content. So I was optimizing content right out the gate because I wasn't that great a developer, but I was a writing major in college, so I really enjoyed the crafting of the messages and the looking into what people were interested in learning. So I enjoyed that part of it, and trying to figure out what could make content perform better was kind of became a passion of mine. So I was a web developer right up until about 2014, and then I read Epic Content Marketing, the first edition by Joe Polizzi and walked right down to the vice president of marketing at the agency I was working at and said, you need to make me your digital marketing manager. And she took a chance and she did. And we made major improvements in our 
traffic to our website and our conversions and our sales. And that led me into my current career path and my job at the university. I, I love to hear that story. I love to hear all marketer stories because I found that the best marketers have diverse backgrounds. You have a thirst for what's new. You have some proven experience in what existed. And you had a chance to to spend some career time in a couple of different areas. Like you understand the backbone, the technology behind this stuff because you were there in the earlier days. You you know writing. So when you talk about SEO, you know writing so you can speak the, the talk of a, of a writer, but you also know the backbone technical part to how it works. Um, and then also, like, like me, we, we didn't, digital marketing came along during our career. You know, we didn't aim for it. <laughs> it kind of became our career because you add all those things that we knew together. So at um, Content Marketing World last week, well, at least last week for you and I, whoever's listening could be later on, um, your topic was a lot around web analytics. Um, so can you give me, give us a, a summary of that so that our listeners can catch up on if they missed. They can also log on to the CMI website and actually watch the replay of that. But um, give us um, a few um, a few gems from that presentation. Yeah, well, doing web analytics and looking at content to see what's performing and what's not performing, it's incredibly important to, to look at the data because the data will tell you the story about who's coming to your website, why they're coming to your website, and what pages they're not coming to. So being able to look at that and figure out from that what pages you should spend your time on, what new content you should create, what existing content could potentially be delivering new customers and new conversions on your site. If you're not looking at your analytics, you're you know, you're basically just throwing out your content and hoping people are reading it and finding it. If you look at your analytics, it'll tell you the facts about what people are actually doing with your content. And that's the beginning of being able to optimize and, and increase your performance. So let me give you some examples, some real life examples for, for me working on our website. And maybe you can help give us some, some guidance there. So I look at my information, my, my analytics, and I see, typically I see surprises. There's always one or two pages that, I'm like, why is this always the highest ranking page? Um, I guess you see that a lot, right? When you do an analysis, do many people you're working for, working with, get surprises that some page they hadn't thought about is like a really top ranking or they're a high traffic page? All the time. And a lot of times they have no idea why it's performing, why people are coming there, why they might have a high bounce rate or low engagement time on the page, but a lot of traffic to it. So. We look at the analytics, we run some reports on it, and we figure out what keywords that page is ranking for. And a lot of times, it's organic traffic that's coming to that page because they're finding it in the search engines, and they think that page is going to answer the questions they have. And a lot of times, it doesn't. But if it does, that's where you're going to start getting those conversions. You're going to start getting those people who are looking for more answers, looking for someone who can provide services or provide products that are going to help them solve their problems. So, you know, really looking at the search results and the search rankings for your pages are what's going to, you know, we call it the low-hanging fruit of content optimization. If you can figure out what's driving traffic and then increase your content in that particular area to drive more traffic and make sure that the traffic that's coming there 
is aligned with your strategic goals. So you're actually converting that traffic, creating those calls to action to push them to actually do something that's going to help you with your strategic goals. It's like the perfect combination. You're solving the user's problems. You're giving Google something to to rank highly that's answering questions that people are asking. And then on your end, you're actually getting your users to help you reach your strategic goals. So what do you do when, I'll give an example that's a, a real life for us. We found a page that for some reason was like next to our homepage, you know, the, the, the base page was the highest ranking page by far. It was a page that um, was a blog article that we didn't really hold in high regard, although it was it was true, it was accurate. It just wasn't we thought what we thought would be a star. So we looked at we looked for trends amongst our higher ranking pages that match that one. Turns out our versus pages, you know, this versus that, tend to rank pretty high. What's your opinion? Now we we don't know if it was because we had two keywords, this keyword versus that keyword in all of those verses, or if um, maybe searchers tend to search for verses. Any idea on why you think that might have been the case? Yeah, so some of the highest converting searches are for, you know, if people are looking to make a purchase, then they are looking to compare different products. So the verses work really well. The how-tos work very well. Those are typically people, you know, wanting to learn how to do things. So if you can provide that knowledge, if you can show that you're an expert on these products or that you understand the uh, technical details behind certain operations, then oftentimes they're going to regard you as the source and then you can you know, steer them towards either purchasing that particular product through affiliate links or through your, using your services as an expert that can help them use those products or those services to their full potential. Well, let's take the inverse. What if I have a high-ranking page that maybe I don't sell that product or service anymore or I just don't like the article? Maybe I don't think it's a quality article. I want I don't want to lose the, the Google juice, but I also don't want traffic going there. What's your suggestion there? Yeah, so that's a tricky situation. And sometimes uh, we were just working on a site last week and it was ranking really high for some terms that were not strategically important to the, the company and that didn't drive any conversions. And so it was just having a high bounce rate on the page and it was low time on page because people were coming to that page. Sometimes they were getting information they wanted, but that was the only thing they wanted from the site. So in situations like that, sometimes you have to look at archiving that content, removing it from the site. But the best thing to do is try to figure out how you can leverage that content to point towards other content you have that does tie into your strategic goals or does provide value in your particular field or area. So in terms of do's and don'ts, though, so I have this page. I could add more content to it that's more relevant to what I want them to see. I could change up keywords, which may undo what the reason why it's ranking so high. Um, or I could just 301 redirect it to where I want it to go. Um, are there any major like don't do's that you would say for someone who has a page that's getting traffic, but it isn't what they, the traffic they want or it's bouncing highly? Where would you say, what, what are some of the don't do's? Yeah, well, one of the things that Google is going to do, uh, their PageRank algorithm is pretty smart about wanting to provide the best answer to users. 
So if your page is consistently getting high bounce rates or low time on page, Google's going to start ranking those lower. So what you don't want to do is just completely remove the page if there's any way that you can leverage that traffic. If you can't leverage that traffic and you know that it's just impacting your your analytics and your content performance, then you may you may want to retire that page. Okay. So keeping with analytics, I mean, the reason why we know this information is because we're looking at Google Analytics to get that data. Um, and some of us, myself included, a little bit slower than others, are moving from the classic GA3, Google Analytics 3, to Google Analytics 4 because it takes redoing some things you may have painfully done before and unplugging some things and taking the chance of things, you know, you're losing analytics, losing information. Um, urgency is, I guess, increasing as the, the clock ticks on to 2023. So what do you say to those people like myself who we know we need to do it, but we're hesitant? Um, what are some of our options? So July 1st, 2023, Google Analytics 3, Universal Analytics is going to stop recording your data. It's going to stop pushing data into your analytics. So it's important that you at least set up the new Google Analytics 4 property. There, I've got lots of tutorials out there. There's lots of different blog articles you can read. It's very simple process, actually. A few steps to actually get it connected and make sure that it's tracking data, that data is being pushed from your website into it. Especially if you have Google Tag Manager set up on your site, it's a very easy process to implement. You don't have to change any code on your site or anything. You just um, create a new property and it starts pushing the data once you connect it. So that's the critical thing is to be collecting data because otherwise you're going to end up July 1st needing to go back and look at your data from the previous month and, and you're not going to have any because you're going to have to start setting it up because nothing in Google starts tracking until you set up the property and open up the space for it to do that. So the most important thing is just set up the property now. And then, you know, then you can start going in and start playing around with the tool. Everything is different in Google Analytics 4. It tracks pages differently. It reports differently. A lot of people don't like it. A lot of the data people do like it. Um, but it's much more accurate. It's providing better data for us to use and more effective insights into our content performance. So. Like anything, when people have to face change, they don't like it a lot of the times, but we're going to end up with uh, better content, better performance, and better analytics. So I guess the, the low-level, the low-hanging fruit is to at least get the code in, right? Right. So yeah, just set up the property. I think, we put the, yeah, I think we put the code into the site. We haven't looked at any dashboards. We haven't looked at anything that it's doing, but we put the code in just to make sure we're gathering data so when we do decide to look at it, it's there. Yeah, that's the most important thing. And if you have, you know, the only other thing you may want to set up is in Google Analytics 3, they were called goals. In Google Analytics 4, they're called conversions. If you have certain high-performing, high-impact conversions that you're tracking, you can go ahead and get those set up as well. Lots of tutorials on how to do that. It's a pretty straightforward process. But just understanding that Google Analytics 4 is all event-based now instead of page-based makes things a little bit different. You just have to look at things in a little bit different light. So before we go any further, tell us where those tutorials are so we can make sure that we have the conversation and people can hear this and go directly to it and, and continue to learn from you. Where are they at? Where can we find those? 
if you go to brianwpiper.com on my blog page, there's an article right on there that I actually published on the tilt.com website that walks you through how to set up a Google Analytics 4 property. Does anything um, convert on its own? Like if you have goals, they convert to events or is everything fresh? Everything's <laughs> fresh. <laughs> it's yeah, a whole new ball game. Yeah, but, I'm gonna just but it does Brian. do a lot of, <laughs> it, yeah, it does do a lot of tracking that you couldn't do in universal analytics, things that you used to have to do with Google Tag Manager. It does scroll depth tracking, uh, engagement. It does engagement. It handles that much better. So that helps with your overall page count being more accurate because in Google Analytics 3, if someone came to your page and they didn't go to another page, and you didn't get the metrics from that last page they visited if they closed their browser or exited the site because uh, it just never sent that data. But in Google Analytics 4, it sends it as people are taking actions on your pages. So it's much, much more accurate that way. So you mentioned scroll depth. Does that mean we'll be able to maybe eliminate some other tools like a hot jar or something that tells us you know, how far people are scrolling on our pages? Yes and no. Uh, even some of the things that are replaced in Google Tag Manager are great that it's natively in Google Analytics 4 now, but there's still a lot of other things that Google Tag Manager tracks that GA4 doesn't. Same with Hotjar. You know, GA4 doesn't do heat maps or screen recordings or anything like that. So some of that information can be useful. It's like any tool depending on which yeah. pieces and parts you use and need and actually provide value to your business will determine whether or not it's actually a useful tool for your stack. Okay. Well, one other area, one other thing in that area, um, as a marketer, we want to track everything, whether it be web traffic, but also from a standpoint of, you know, from, from marketing and like email outbound marketing, we currently still are very heavily dependent on cookies and tracking and we're heading towards either first-party cookies or, or a cookie-less world. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is there anything we can do to prepare for that? I mean, I know every company is different in terms of whether they have country borders and rules to deal with in terms of what they can track. But at a, at a high level, what are some of your current thoughts on, on cookies and where we're headed with that? Well, there's a lot of discussion around, especially third-party cookies, as, as they're going away. Google keeps pushing out the uh, restrictions around third-party cookies, and they they're like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna push this out for another six months, and we're not gonna completely disable them just yet in all of our browsers. But we're seeing them going away. It's definitely the the way things are gonna go, especially with all the privacy. You've got all sorts of difference, not just GDPR. Now you've got the the California privacy regulations, and you're gonna see more and more of that as people are more concerned about their data and how their data is shared and collected, especially by these big centralized entities, you know, Twitter and Facebook and all these different companies. And the different analytics platforms and the tools, I mean, Google is trying to figure out the way around the third-party cookie problem. And a lot of people are trying to figure that out. And I think that's one of the things that Web3 is going to do very well and empower people with is the ability to to control our own data instead of having someone else controlling and collecting our data. So I think it's a so step was, in the right direction from a privacy standpoint, but from a marketing standpoint, yeah, there's definitely some, some issues that are, that are arising. Yeah. That was almost a perfect transition into web three. So I want to talk about that, but I, I actually, I think I need to back up a bit because um, 
Our listeners range from executives and data analysts down to people who are looking to get into marketing. So I don't want to leave them out either. Um, and plus, there's also those who manage marketing who don't get into the details of, of cookies and things, but they are affected by it. So let's come up a little higher and just look at cookies. And can you give us kind of a, a layman's like definition of what a cookie is, what it does, you know, the difference between first, second, and third, and why it's going to affect marketers as, because, you know, you may see a headline that says, you know, Google blocks Facebook cookies or Apple phones are blocking this. It doesn't mean a lot to most people, but it affects them a lot. So try to uh, maybe go back a few years and try to give us the, a simple, <laughs> it's hard for us. We're, we're in the weeds, right? We're, we're deep into it and it's our job to know the details, but Give us a simplified version of, of cookies and what they do. Yeah, so cookies are basically just small files that are written into your browser as you are surfing the internet. So there's different ways that they're collected and written into your browser. And basically, the data that you capture into those cookies is... Most of the time, uh, some of the time that data is voluntarily given and some of the time it's just collected and stored and then used by other sites. So first party data is data that you share voluntarily. So if I go to a form and I fill out my information that can go into the, that's first party data that I'm sharing with that particular company or brand. And they can store that data on my browser, in my browser as a cookie, so that the next time I come back to their site, I don't have to fill out that information. It can remember that I've logged in, that I've got an account. And then second-party data is data that's shared um, between different brands, like trusted brands that work together. Sometimes you can log into another site using your Google account. So they share some of that data so that they know that now you're associated with this email address and they can kind of determine what information they're going to pull. And then the third-party data is collected and stored based on which sites you browse. So you may not intentionally be giving that data out, but as you're surfing through sites, they can look through your existing cookies sometimes or they can find like accounts that you're logged in through and they can collect that data or they can collect data about what pages you visit, what products you look at, and then they can share that when you go to the next site. The next site might be able to look into these open cookies and figure out what you've been doing and what other sites you've been on. And that opens up a lot of you know, doors as far as security and privacy issues. You may not want to share that information with every website you visit and a lot of websites now are, you know, they have the pop-ups when you go there. We're all used to this. You know, do you allow all cookies or only allowed sponsored cookies? Or So that's kind of how cookies work and how they connect data back and forth throughout the internet. That's a very good summary. And I'm glad we did that because especially when you get to the third party. The third parties are ones that most often get blamed when people say, yes, this company's listening to us. You know, that's right. Exactly. Um, now, I'm not saying that some companies don't listen, but I do know from a professional standpoint that oftentimes we've done things to give the information unknowingly. Exactly. Um, so, for example, if if you go to um, a Nissan website 
and you're scrolling for a particular car and you say to someone, wow, this is a pretty cool car. I like this Nissan Maxima. Then you go to Facebook and a Nissan Maxima ad pops up. It isn't because Facebook was listening. It's because you scrolled, right? Um, I, I heard a case once where someone was claiming that Facebook was listening to them. Again, I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying in this case, I'm, I could I could trace back to what happened. Uh, the person was at their office and they were shopping for something on their office on their laptop in their office, um, and then they came home and discussed it with their wife. The wife opens up her iPad and gets an ad for it, and they're like, "Wow, they heard us talking, and now it's on my iPad." Well, what really happened was what my theory is. He searched for it. He got cookied. They geofenced the cookie to know where he is. Now he's on the same IP address and within a few feet of another computer. She opens up her computer. She sees the ad because she's next to him, not Absolutely. because they had a conversation. Um, now, That's given right. that, is it possible that someone could get, I guess you can't get a cookie from a conversation unless that app is listening and then they add it to the cookie that, the app you have on. I guess that's probably possible, not admitted, but possible, I guess, right? We all have voice devices, you know, we got Siri, we got Alexa, we got all these things that are listening to us all the time. And they always say they're just listening for the keyword to activate them. Who knows they, what, I mean, yeah. they are listening, you know? Yeah, I mean, Whether, if I've given Amazon access to my browser and I, I agreed to personalized advertising, which is tech talk for your cookies, right? Right. <laughs> so yep. if I agreed to that and on page 25 in the fine print, it says, or any other devices, then technically I could say, you know, Nissan Sentra in the air, my device hears it, it adds it to my cookie. And then when I go searching for it, it's there. Absolutely. And we've had discussions at the dinner table about topics that we haven't discussed before as a family. And we've got our Alexa sitting right there next to us. And we go and then after dinner, we get, you know, we're looking at YouTube TV and an ad pops up for the very thing that we were talking about. Maybe one of the kids jumped on their phone, did a Google search, who knows exactly how it figured it out. But the, the targeted ads and the personalized ads are uh, sometimes a little scary. <laughs> so, so given that, I mean, we, we have regulation and technology who are, I mean, I guess there's both sides of the coin. One side you have those who are saying, let's cut out some of these third parties so it's a little less creepy. On the other side, you have advertisers like Google and Facebook who are going to sit back and be quiet because they want to track everything. Um, then you have us consumers. I mean, when Facebook asked me that I want to turn off my personalized ads, I left it on because they're going to send me ads anyway. Exactly. Might as well be something I'm interested in. So right. we all play a part in this. Um, and so you mentioned Web3. So let's say, for example, third-party cookies gets cut out, which is possible from a, from a honest marketer standpoint, you know, being that Google and Facebook, Apple are going to do what they're going to do regardless. Um, we get down to a level where we're at first party cookies, which is basically only the site you're dealing with knows what you're doing, right? To kind of a rough definition of first party. Yep, absolutely. Um, so how does that tie into better security and maybe into Web3? 
So if you are only, if your data is only being co connect, collected by a particular website that you gave permission to or that you gave your data to, that's your choice. It's not data that's being passed between partners or just being passed blindly between different websites, which is what we have now. Now, one of the things that Web3 provides is the ability for the users to control our own data. So when we go to a website, let's say in a few years, once Web3 becomes more widespread and websites start seeing the value of using digital IDs, digital wallets as identification, you can just go to a website and it'll be a blank screen and it'll just say, connect your wallet. You connect your digital wallet, your digital ID to it. And based on what items you have put in that wallet and what things you decide that you want to share with the different brands, the different companies, the different websites you're going to, then they'll be able to build a personalized experience for you based on that. They'll be able to tie that digital ID to previous uh, visits that they have tracked to their website, previous products that you have purchased through them. If you're, let's say you're clothes shopping, shoe shopping, for instance, and you, you have a particular size, you include some personal data in your ID that you're going to share with this site about your shoe size. Maybe you want to show them some of the different types of styles that you've purchased through other companies. You can choose to put that into your wallet so that you share that with them. So that's not an opportunity that we have right now. We don't have the ability to control our own data. That's one of the things that Web3 provides is, is the opportunity to do that. And when you look at the brands that are starting to play in that Web3 space, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a coincidence that Salesforce, which is one of the largest CRM brands, just launched the NFT cloud where they can actually create those types of experiences and create that type of CRM using your NFTs, your digital IDs, your digital assets. I'm glad you mentioned it that way because until now I had seen when you reference your your digital wallet, I'm thinking about money. I'm thinking about, you know, what I'm spending money or crypto or whatever. I had not thought about it in terms of that wallet being more or less of a personal folder, like my, right? my file, I mean, you basically. You think of your your current wallet with your uh, your license in there, you know, your credit cards. Your it's got a lot of different personal information in there. Web three gives you the opportunity to control who sees that and who can look at these credentials. And these credentials will all be verifiable and publicly viewable, so that you can control who has access. Like even your medical records, Estonia has converted their entire. Uh, country government system to the blockchain back in like 2008. They've been working this way and it takes them five minutes to do their taxes because all their information is out on the blockchain. It's not connected to their personal ID, but it's connected to that digital ID that they can then control who has access to that and who doesn't. And the same with their medical information. If you switch doctors or hospitals here, you know, it's a process. You've got to like call a doctor and have them send your records to the new, you know, all of your information. If you want to look at the results of a test you had done, you have to log into some third party system that's got all those records in the Web3 space. You can just turn off access to one physician and turn on access to another physician. 
and then they can access your personal data that way. So, so Brian, you're a, a Web3 educator, which, you know, I love that title because anybody right now who knows anything about Web3 is ahead of the curve. So when you walk into the room or walk on stage and you want to tell an audience who doesn't know anything about it yet, it takes a lot of, I guess, comparison or bringing back to layman's terms. So how do you even start explaining to someone what Web3 is? So I, I, yeah, you know, it's like everything. You start with the basics. And the whole backbone of Web3 is based on the blockchain. And the blockchain is just a database. Uh, the, the major blockchains are public databases that are verifiable so people can go and access and see the transactions that are occurring on that database, on that blockchain, publicly visible. They're not tied to a specific person, so personal information is not included, but they are tied to a particular wallet or digital ID. So it's this, and they can't be changed. That's the really important thing about it. You can, once it's written, it's encrypted and time-stamped, so there's no way to go in and change it without having, you know, uh, it's very difficult to go in and change it. Um, so that's what gives it its security. It's very secure from that standpoint. So everything that comes out of that, all the different tactics and the different tools that are being created, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, social tokens, they all play a different role. So I start out high level, just kind of understanding what the blockchain is how it can be used. And then I go into a lot of use cases. So talk about all the companies who are using blockchain to manage their supply chain inventory. So all those supply chain records create that trust from the customer who can go and look at all of the steps that their product went through in the you know, production process. So it gives you that visibility. It helps build that trust with your customers so there's a lot of different ways you can use all the different pieces of Web3 technologies um, and just kind of tying those together with real life examples and use cases is what makes people aware that this is not just overpriced JPEGs and pretend <laughs> money. You know, the, the yeah. fundamental technologies that allow all of these uh, new tactics to, to happen and be available to us is not going away. And I really see Web3 as the next evolution of the internet. And we were around for, you know, the, the first evolution of the internet with, you know, social media and blogging and CRM and all of that kind of evolved and grew and was adopted. And then mobile, you know, and all of the, the mobile applications and everything. And you know, Web3 is just the next iteration of that with now you're, you're going to be able to pay digitally with currency anywhere in the world almost instantaneously without having to go through a third-party provider. You're going to be able to you know, exchange goods and services, trade people, build communities in an entirely different way where you're able to co-create and co-own, where you can actually bring your community into your your content, your brand, that whole experience. And then, you know, there's the whole metaverse end of it as well, which is, which is an entirely uh, different, different aspect, which is also going to create, you know, wide sweeping changes. Maybe we'll have web one, web two, web three, and metaverse. 
you know, there you unless, go. There's a four, unless a four slides in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and for those who, who are not ready to willingly participate in Web3, I say willingly because you're going to whether you want to or not. <laughs> um, I think it's important to, to, to mention what you said earlier about just, it's a kind of a definition. It's really just a description of where we're at on the evolution of the internet, right? Um, the numbers, depending on where you read, the numbers match differently. But my general understanding is web one was like, the internet was like a brochure. You pull a web page up, you saw it, you couldn't really interact with it or change it or create anything. You just pulled it up. It's like a PDF on a screen, basically. Web two, we began to be able to click and interact and submit something or fill a form out or talk in a blog or something, you know, in a, in a chat room. It's kind of a 2.5 in there somewhere where we began social, where we can actually have live communications where it wasn't with the site, but it was with each other. Yep. Um, and so now we're at three, which is not some new web three in itself isn't a new technology. It's a definition. It's a, it's a term to help us understand the level of technology that the web, the web has gotten to. Right. Yeah, There's absolutely. There's a lot of and, things involved in there. Right. Yep. And you know, when I explain it to people, I kind of say web one was read only. We, we yep. just consumed information. Web two was read, write. Now we had the ability to use our voices and to create our content. And then web three is really read, write and own. So this is the first time uh, we've actually had the opportunity to own digital property that we can prove that we own that can actually represent some sort of utility, some sort of value. So that's kind of the new innovative part of Web3 is now you can, you know, it's not just that I, I have this monkey picture, right? I, I, I could right mm -hmm. click and save that and have the picture. It's that I own this asset, which gives me opportunities. It gives me entry into communities. It gives me the ability to join certain groups or to participate in certain projects or to get certain rewards. So it's really the ownership that sets the, the Web3 landscape apart. That's very clear, the ownership. In fact, I had bought digital property or NFT before I knew what it was. And this is how it happened. And this happened to a lot of parents who don't know they own NFTs. When my son, who's a gamer, asked for V-Bucks or something to buy, he's like, hey, I want this new jacket for my character. I want this new skin, which is just, you know, it's clothing. And I give him money to buy this digital asset. He buys this clothing that he wears across different games or metaverses or wherever he's at, but it's his. And he can wear it when he wants to. It's his asset. We'll never physically touch it, but it's his to own wherever he travels in the, the metaverse or the digital universe that he's in. And it was way after when I learned what an NFT was and I, when, I, when I became more educated, I was like, wait a minute, I've bought digital things before and didn't even realize it. You know? yep. Yep. Things that Absolutely. I will never see, never touch, but when <laughs> I'm in that world, I own it. Um, yeah. So, so then I went out like, hey, let me find some, let me buy some digital land somewhere, you know? Oh, they're selling then it. The, yeah, then I found the price <laughs> of it. Eh, yeah. I bought it. <laughs> yeah. You got to have a, it's like anything in marketing or any investment that you make. You have to have a strategy. You have to have a goal. You have to have some, you know, utility in mind for it. Or, or you're just, you know, you're just playing. You don't really know where you're going. So, well, that's that's how you learn. It's how you get to be a Web three educator. 
So you've you've taken some risk. You're doing a lot to learn. You know more than the rest of us because you've taken those risks. So you said you have your own coin yourself, right? I do, the Piper coin. Piper so I'm coin. using that to help build a community all around content optimization and Web3 education. Okay. And I think I saw you were, you were earlier purchaser of Tilt coin, Joe Polizzi's coin. Right? That's correct. Yeah. So I own a bunch of different creator coins. I probably have 30 or 40 different creator coins that I own some of and use that ownership to get access to those different communities, different opportunities. And I've gotten a lot of, you know, speaking gigs and content creation opportunities and, you know, work also from being involved in those different communities. So I'd almost call you a futurist as well, because I mean, it's, it's here, but you know about it. I mean, it, it takes people who are willing to learn about things that are not certain yet are very valuable to me, to, to people, I think, because if we don't have the energy or time to study, somebody needs to, and somebody needs to educate us. And if I need to turn to someone for this, I'm going to turn to you because I know you're, you're taking the risk and you're learning about it. Um, so I want to bring, tie this into our, our last thing here because you are very aware and you're teaching about the future, but then you came full circle because you mentioned Joe Polizzi's book um, that you read. It pivoted your career, but now you've circled back with Joe to help rewrite that same book. So tell yeah. us about the book and how that whole evolution came and, and what we can expect in the book. So after I read Epic Content Marketing, changed my career path, I got into my job at the University of Rochester where I currently work. And within weeks of starting on that job, I convinced the leadership that they needed to send me to Content Marketing World, which was Joe's event at the time. Mm -hmm. And so every year I would go to Content Marketing World, I would find Joe, I would take a selfie with him and thank him for writing the book. And then as I started speaking and presenting and giving workshops, I started presenting at Content Marketing World two years ago virtually and then last year in person. So last year I got to spend a lot more time with the other speakers, including Joe. We developed a friendship and one of the things I, I've been consistently asking him over the years was when he was going to do a second edition. And I kept saying, Joe, it's still got Google plus in there. I mean, you gotta, you gotta update this. <laughs> uh, and so finally we were in a, a few weeks after the event last year, we were in a Slack chat room and we were reviewing a, uh, uh, his last book content Inc. And so I asked him again in the channels, when are you going to do a second edition of Epic Content? And he said, let's co-author it and I'll do it. I said, okay, absolutely. So it's been a, a fantastic journey and it's been great working with Joe on updating the content. And we basically took, at first we were just going to throw the whole thing out and start all over again. But once we started going through the content, we realized that it's still incredibly valuable. Almost all of it still applies so we cut the first edition down to about two-thirds of the, the second edition. We updated all the case studies. We put in all new statistics around all the different areas. And then we added entirely new sections on content optimization, on AI and machine learning, and on Web3 and community building. So it's really kind of taken you know, the next evolution of content marketing and 
We talked to all sorts of expert content marketers, including yourself, and you know, put all of their insights into the book as well. Great. I look forward to that. I think we're looking at what, January 23 or what are we looking at? February 14th. So Valentine's Day. So if you're looking for a good Valentine's Day present for your (laughs) wife, I already told my wife that's what she was getting and she didn't seem very (laughs) thrilled about it, but it it is available for pre-order now. So, you know, you can have it for after Valentine's Day. Yeah, it's valuable, but I would suggest make a bed in a doghouse for the 15th if you do that. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably a good (laughs) one. Great. Well, Brian, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, I'm lucky I have the opportunity to we can stay connected and talk. And we've talked since. But um, for the listeners, um, please give them all the places you mentioned where you can get some tutorials from you. Um, for those who've listened and heard about, you know, Brian's expertise now in, in Web3 and the, the proven history in, in Google and, and analytics and website development and so much you can get from Brian. So, Brian, where can we find you and continue to learn from you? BrianWPiper.com. It has links to all of my social channels. I'm pretty much Brian W. Piper everywhere you go. So, and it's been a pleasure talking with you today, Lee. I really enjoy your show and get so much value out of you and all the guests you have on. So I appreciate the opportunity. Wow. Well, thank you, Brian. So um, marketers and business people, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, if you want to see Brian and I, you can always tune in uh, and find the videos Uh, on contentmonster.com. Again, Brian, once again, thank you. Stay well. Thank you for listening to the Business of Marketing podcast, a show brought to you by contentmonster.com, the producer of B2B digital marketing content. Show notes can be found on contentmonster.com as well as aleejudge.com. To continue the conversation, be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform.